Welcome to the Proper Lookout Podcast, published by the Statutory Insurance Group of McCabe Kerwood. In this series, our CTP experts will discuss a range of topics, sharing their thoughts on an industry trend or an intriguing legal issue, explaining the intricacies of an important case, and hopefully imparting some of the knowledge that they have gained. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to the latest edition of the Proper Lookout podcast. This is Peter Hunt. For those who operate in the CTP world, or for that matter, in the workers' compensation world, you will know that the Personal Injury Commission, the PIC, commenced on 1 March 2021. And I think that the practice and procedure which we became accustomed to during the CARS and the DRS eras has largely carried over into the the new world of the PIC. But there are some differences. A good source of information, in addition to the PIC Act and the PIC rules are the procedural directions issued by the Commission, which can be found on the PIC website. To review those rules, go to the website and click on Resources, and you'll then see a tab for procedural directions. So the purpose of today's podcast is to discuss some of the aspects of the PIC procedural directions which jumped out at me when I read through them recently. So, starting with a procedural direction, PIC1, Conduct of Parties During Proceedings. Clauses 16 and 17 under the heading Conduct Prior to Proceedings are important. Clause 16 provides that it is expected that the parties have preliminary discussions prior to any listing in the Commission. These discussions should focus on resolving the issues as a whole or in part, or, if that is not possible, limiting the issues in dispute. Regardless of the outcome of these preliminary discussions, parties are still expected to use their best endeavours to settle the matter before the Commission. End quote. Now, I don't think that's particularly novel. In any jurisdiction, the parties are expected to attempt to resolve the whole of the dispute or part of the dispute before proceeding to a contested hearing, but I think it's important to emphasise. Then Clause 17 provides, quote, parties should also discuss and consider the lodging of the following with an application or a reply. And then there are four things listed. Firstly, a statement of agreed facts and issues in accordance with Rule 70 of the PIC rules. Secondly, an agreed schedule of earnings or schedule of damages. Next, in workers' compensation proceedings, an agreed figure for PIAWE. And fourthly, an agreement reached as to the degree of permanent impairment in one or more body parts. In the CTP world, that last requirement would involve either agreeing or assessing WPI. Now, the next clause which jumped out at me in PIC1 is under the heading Contacting the Commission is Clause 22, and it says, quote, except during the course of a teleconference, conference or hearing, a party should never communicate directly with the decision maker to which the matter is allocated. All correspondence must be sent through the Commission's online portal via email, and that's help at pi.nsw.gov.au, via one of the other contact methods provided in the Commission rules, 
or through the Commission's staff member assigned to manage the dispute. End quote. Now, that's an important change. For the last 20 or so years, since the introduction of cars in the 1999 Act, MACA, the parties to a dispute have been able to contact a CARS assessor or subsequently a DRS assessor directly, for example, where they need to adjourn a preliminary conference. Of course, that was always done in a transparent way where the other party was copied in, but there was that flexibility available to the parties to contact the uh, decision maker directly when circumstances required it. Uh, That is no longer permissible with the Commission. As Clause 22 of PIC 1 says, it is not appropriate to contact a decision maker directly. Instead, everything has to go through the Commission, either through the portal, through the Commission email, or through the Commission staff member, as opposed to the PIC member. The final thing I wanted to point out in uh, PIC 1 is Clause 36, which provides, quote, um, parties will be given an opportunity to present their case through providing oral or written submissions and, where leave is granted, through examination of a witness. Here's the important part. Hearings are recorded. A copy of the recording will be made available to the parties in accordance with the Commission's policy, audio recordings and transcripts, end quote. So this is a major change. Both in CARS and DRS, all the proceedings were done in a forum which was not recorded. The parties took notes, and that was the only real record of what happened during the course of the conference. But for hearings under the Commission, there will be a audio recording of uh, what transpired. That would be, of course, very useful when it comes to an admin law challenge in the Supreme Court. But I guess it also mandates for the parties that, or at least the representatives, that they're on their best behaviour during the course of a um, commission hearing because what they do and what they say will be recorded for posterity through the audio uh, recordings process. Guys, what you say and what you do will be there forever. So that's um, Procedural Direction PIC 1. Moving on to PIC 2, which is titled Determination of Matters on the Papers. And the relevant clause here is Clause 7 and Clause 8. Clause 7 says, quote, In appropriate matters, the presidential member, a member of the commission, or a member of staff, whom a matter is listed before, will decide whether or not the matter is suitable for determination on the papers. And then Clause 8 sets out the factors to be taken into account in deciding whether or not a determination on the papers is appropriate. And they're quite interesting, so I'll list them in the order they appear in the um, procedural direction. So A, have the parties addressed all the relevant issues in their submission? Presumably if they haven't, then it's not appropriate to do it on the papers and an oral hearing is required. B, does the evidence deal appropriately with all issues in dispute? Again, I interpose that if the evidence is not um, sufficient, then a face-to-face hearing is warranted. C, are further submissions required? My comment is, if further submissions are not required, then a determination of the papers is appropriate. D, has one or have both parties requested a decision on the papers? What's interesting there is what will happen if one party does not 
agree to a decision on the papers? Will one party requesting it be sufficient? E, are there any objections to a determination on the papers, which is a point I just made? F, are there questions as to the credit of a party or a witness? My comment there is, if if credit is an issue, I would submit that an assessment on the papers is not appropriate and that the matter should go to a face-to-face hearing so that credit can be appropriately assessed. G, what is the degree of complexity of the legal and slash or factual issues in dispute? My comment, if it's complex, then a face-to-face hearing is probably a better forum. H, do the matters in dispute concern only questions of law? That's an interesting one, isn't it? If the only issues in dispute are questions of law, then an assessment of the papers may well be appropriate. But then again, if the legal issues are complex, then some discussion may be warranted either by way of face-to-face conference, audio-visual, or a telephone conference. I, is one of the parties self-represented and slash or by reason of cultural or linguistic background or for any other reason, prevented from representing a logical argument in writing. Obviously, in those circumstances, a assessment of papers is not appropriate and a face-to-face conference is ideal. J, does one of the parties lack understanding of the Commission's functions and role? My comment, again, if so, I think a face-to-face is a better idea. And K, in all the circumstances, is it appropriate to determine the particular matter on the papers? So K is obviously the catch-all in case items A to J were not sufficient to cover the topic. Good, okay. So moving on to procedural direction PIC3, documents and late documents. The provision which jumped out to me was clause 18, which is under the heading order of documents. And this is a particular bugbear of mine because reading a lot of, in the old days, cars or DRS applications and these days PIC applications. And even thinking back to the distant past when I was a cars assessor, reading replies lodged by the insurer, it was extremely frustrating where the documents were attached to the application or the reply were in no logical order, literally all over the place. And even more so where the documents attached were not in the same order as they were listed in the form. So for those reasons, clause 18 is close to my heart. It's not mandatory, but it says that supporting documents should be sorted into a logical sequence. The following order is recommended. That's the part which is not mandatory. And the recommended order is witness statements, claim forms, dispute notices, schedules of damages, schedules of earnings, relevant correspondence, list of payments, factual investigation reports, medical reports, medical investigation reports, clinical notes, and financial records, followed by wage records in the following order, pay slips, bank statements, tax returns, and award information. Then clause 19 of PIC 3 is also instructive in that it says, Documents within each of the above categories should be arranged in chronological order, with the first in time place first. I couldn't agree more with that direction. Finally, in regard to pick three, 
Clause 20 says that care should be taken to ensure that all documents attached are relevant to the resolution of the real issues in the proceedings rather than attaching all documents in the possession of the party. Again, I couldn't agree more. And Clause 20 even includes the following, quote, for example, financial records are generally unlikely to be relevant for the purpose of a medical assessment, end quote. Truer words have never been spoken or indeed included in a practice direction. Procedural direction PIC3 also includes clause 30, which is in relation to late documents in proceedings in the motor accidents division. Clause 30 says, quote, in accordance with rule 67 bracket 5 close bracket of the PIC rules, a party to motor accident proceedings may lodge additional material with the commission at any time before the assessment if, and then there's three criteria, A, all parties to the proceedings consent to its lodgement, B, it is lodged at the direction of the commission, C, it is in the interest of justice for it to be lodged. So these rules are familiar. I think from memory back in the cars and DRS days, um, similar rules applied. The first step for any party seeking to lodge additional documents was to seek the consent of the opposing party. If that failed, a direction could be sought from the, in those days, CARS assessor or DRS assessor, now the commission. But importantly, the overriding and overarching factor was whether admitting the late documents was in the interest of justice or not. Now, this is very important, I think, in the motor accidents scheme, where the insurer is bound by the outcome of the commission assessment of damages in circumstances where liability is admitted. I think it can be argued by insurers quite strongly that if a document is relevant to the issue in dispute, that there is an overriding interest of justice in allowing the document to be admitted, even though it's late, because the insurer is bound by the outcome of the damages assessment and it is therefore procedurally unfair for the relevant document to be excluded from consideration. Okay, with that sermon delivered, let me explain that there are different categories of procedural directions on the PIC website. There are firstly general directions, some of which I've just explained or discussed. Then there are directions relevant only to the workers' compensation division. And finally, there are procedural directions relevant only to the motor accident division. The next direction I want to discuss is MA1, which is relevant only to the motor accident division, given the reference to MA in the title. MA1 deals with stood over proceedings. Clause 8 of um, MA1 says that, quote, any claimant that has lodged proceedings in a common law claim for damages in the motor accident division in which those proceedings are not ready for assessment may apply to the commission to have the matter referred to the stood over list, end quote. Then Clause 9 says an application may be made by way of submissions to the commission attached to the application. End quote. So that's important, I think, the machinery to make an application to have the matter referred to the stood over list is by submissions attached to the application. 
Then Clause 10 provides some examples of when the Commission may refer proceedings to the Stadover list, and they include A, a medical dispute has not been finalised, B, the claimant's injuries have not yet sufficiently recovered to enable the claim to be quantified, and the claimant is not ready for medical assessment. C, the claimant is not available to participate in medical and slash or claims assessment as at this time due to reasons beyond their control, for example, due to being overseas or due to being imprisoned. Um, Curious examples. That's my comment, not in the rules. D, any other reason the Commission considers as relevant to the proceedings being unable to continue. So Clause 10 gives some examples of when a claim may be referred to the Stolover list. It's not exhaustive, but it appears an intention exists to be open-minded about whether a claim is ready for assessment. And there's an acknowledgement that some claims, when lodged, for example, to meet the three-year time limitation, are not ready for assessment and should be placed in the Stolover list pending them becoming ready for assessment. Having said that, Clause 15 of MA1 is important. It says, quote, Proceedings will be discontinued at the expiry of six months from the day the proceedings were stood over and dismissed in accordance with Rule 101, bracket 3 of the PIC rules unless a party applies to have the proceedings restored for hearing or unless an extension of time has been granted by the Commission. An extension of time may be granted at the discretion of the Commission in circumstances where the reasons for referral to the stood-over list have not resolved despite the effort of the parties, end quote. So Clause 15 recognises that claims should not remain in the stood-over list forever. There's a presumption that they'll remain there for only six months, by which state are be dismissed, unless either the matter is ready for hearing or an extension of time is granted by the Commission. If the matter is dismissed, the claim is then in trouble because they'll presumably be outside the three-year limitation period as a consequence and will need to provide a full and satisfactory explanation in order to have the matter restored. Now, on the question of... um late applications to the Commission for Assessment of Damages, that is, applications made more than three years after the accident. That brings me to Procedural Direction MA7, which is entitled Claims Disputes, and specifically Clause 21, which provides as follows, quote, In circumstances where a claim for damages is made under the 2017 Act and an application is made to the Commission, outside the three-year period prescribed by the 2017 Act, the claimant must provide to the Commission, with the application, a full and satisfactory explanation for the delay in lodging the application. Continuing on with the quote of Clause 21, the explanation will be considered by the Commission and a determination will be made as to whether the explanation is full and satisfactory and, therefore, whether the late application can be made. In the event that the explanation is considered by the Commission to be full and satisfactory, and the application can therefore be made, the application will be allocated to a member for assessment, end quote. 
Now, that clause actually raises a couple of questions in my mind. Firstly, it appears that the assessment of whether the explanation for the late lodgement is full and satisfactory is to be considered by and determined by the staff member assigned to manage the dispute, as opposed, it seems, to the member. And secondly, it's not clear to me whether the insurer is given an opportunity to make submissions on the question of whether the the explanation for the delayed lodgement is full and satisfactory. I guess clarity will come with practice, but at this stage, those issues arise in my head. So that concludes the um, clauses which leapt out to me when reading the Commission procedural directions. Very keen listeners will notice that there are quite a number of directions I have not discussed. For example, PIC 4, expert witness evidence, PIC 5, schedule of earnings, PIC 6, medical assessments, PIC 7, appeals, reviews, considerations and correction of obvious errors in medical disputes, PIC 9, production of information and calling of witnesses, and PIC 10, hearings during COVID-19. I've also not discussed any of the workers' compensation directions, and in the motor accident division, I've not considered or discussed MA2, merit review, MA3, approval of damages settlements, MA4, appointed representatives, MA5, matters unsuitable for assessment and mandatory exemptions, MA6, review of a single merit review by a a review panel. Now, I know that approval of damages assessment is being discussed by my learned colleagues and friends, Renee Reddy and Lorette Risk, and doubtless the other directions will be discussed um, either by myself or other members of the McCabe Kerwood statutory benefits team in future episodes of the Proper Lookout podcast. But for now, at almost 25 minutes, I think I've said enough for this episode. So thank you for your time. If you have any questions, please contact either myself or one of the team. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, it is, of course, very dangerous out there. So whatever you do during the course of your day, please always keep a proper lookout. Cheerio. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Proper Lookout podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information on anything discussed, please contact Peter Hunt at peter.hunt at or visit our website to see McCabe Kerwood's full team of specialists.